Today is Trinity Sunday. It's a Sunday that no preacher wants to preach. Because there's been a lot of stupid things said about the Trinity, and you just hope that you don't say one of them. Uh, today is not a day where we talk about ice and water and mist or vapor. I don't have any egg illustrations for you today. Well, some of you were not raised in church, apparently. Like, is any of, any of those metaphors clicking? Thanks. Thank you. You know, uh, Rowan Williams, <laughs> former Archbishop of Canterbury, surprising how many people get Rowan Williams confused with Rowan Atkinson. One of them was the former Archbishop of Canterbury. The other is Mr. Bean. So Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, he said that when we talk about the Trinity, we use the language of persons to just keep from using worse language. It's the only reason that we use persons kinds of language when we talk about the Trinity. We don't like to talk about the Trinity. The Trinity's hard to talk about. And, and not only that, but we don't really think it has much bearing on our lives as people. Let's uh, start here in Psalm 27. If you brought your Bible today, hold it up, wave it around a little. Psalm 27, verse 4. This is one that we're familiar with. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and pay attention to this language, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. I'm looking around today for Father Chris because he has been my hype man all week talking about the Trinity. Um, and we need these kinds of people in our lives, people who are affirming when we even try to wade into, into deeper waters than maybe we're comfortable with. But gazing on the beauty of the Lord. When we talk about Trinity, we need to understand that it's, it's something that's difficult, but it's not impossible to talk about the Trinity. I mean, there's, there's the nature of the Trinity, and we, we do understand the nature of the Trinity is a mystery. But when we as Christians say the word mystery, what we don't mean is that it's a mystery in the sense of it is, it's unknowable. What we mean when we say mystery is that it, it's a, an endless kind of knowing. That the more you experience it, the more you're brought back to the thing, brought back to the mystery, that it opens up on more and more kinds of knowing. And so when we say that the nature of the, of the Trinity is a mystery, again, we don't mean that it's impossible. We just mean that it's endless, an endless kind of knowing the nature of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is challenging. It's, it's difficult. But if we all sit with it long enough, we can get there. We can get there. The doctrine of the Trinity, in a nutshell, is that the identity of God, the Father, is shown to us in Jesus Christ, the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. If anybody asks you to describe the Trinity. It's about the identity of God the Father being shown in Jesus Christ the Son 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there aren't a lot of sermons on the Trinity. Maybe you're hoping to hear one less sermon today on the Trinity. But part of the reason why, I think there's a few reasons, is that a lot of us grew up in churches that are the result of revivalist movements. And so, so many of the churches that we grew up in actually came out of traditions that had form, they had liturgy, they had formalism. And what we bought into over time is that for us to really engage with the Spirit, for us to really have experiences with the power of the Spirit, we had to leave behind that formalism, those traditions, those practices that looked like to us what we've called dead religion. So, so we've abandoned dead religion because we really want relationship, right? This is something that we've heard over and over again. I don't want religion, I want relationship. The problem is that as we've abandoned these traditions and we've started to pursue the power of the Spirit, this is a lot of the work of John Wesley, if you're interested in that, but part of what happens to us is that we lose our orientation as to who this God is. We lose our orientation to what is this God's character? What is he like? And so we need forms, we need structures that help us to get in touch with who this God is and what this God's character is like so that when we do experience moves of the Spirit, we know what we can trust. This has been part of the ongoing project of, of Sanctuary is what does it look like to return to some of these forms, knowing that the forms in and of themselves are not alive in any sense. They have to be animated and have to be brought to life by the Spirit. But this has been part of the project for a long time. And so without knowing it, maybe you all <laughs> have been part of this project. Another reason why we don't hear a lot of sermons on the Trinity is, again, because it's just difficult. A lot of us hear language of Trinity and we just kind of gloss over. We get too worried about using the right metaphors and the right analogies. But the reality is we are talking about God. We're talking about God in ways that are faithful. And to do that, to strive to do that, to try and find language for talking about God in ways that are faithful is a struggle. It's challenging, it's difficult. We're talking about the one whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, who is both within us and without us. We're talking about God in three persons. Of course, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging, there's going to be a struggle, but there's also something right in struggling to say it. There's something right about us sitting with it long enough and wrestling with it long enough. Another reason we don't hear a lot of sermons on the Trinity is that we've, we've given up talking about the Trinity because it just, it doesn't seem very practical. In fact, it seems really impractical. In a lot of ways, we've given ourselves over to the tyranny of the practical and the pragmatic. And so we come to church, we're ready to receive something that we can just smash into our brains, something that's immediately applicable, that can help us make better decisions on Monday morning. 
I mean, if we're honest, this is so much of why we come to church. We want the thing that immediately shows us how to live a better life or how to make some part of our life easier so that we can smash it into our brains and move out into the world and put it into practice. But talking about the Trinity, just, it just isn't that. To be sure, for any of us who stand up here and we're tasked with doing this kind of thing on this side of this stage, we feel that pressure that you need something to help you live your life better, to make better decisions come Monday morning, to be able to walk into that difficult meeting and know what to say or know what to do. But I think part of the task of the Christian life is not to have some kind of secret to, to living a better life, but somehow it's simply learning how to enjoy God. Augustine, 1,600 years ago, he said that human beings have things that they are to use, but they are to enjoy God and neighbor. We have things that are useful to us, that are resources for us, but then we're called to enjoy God and our neighbor. And I think oftentimes we get this flipped. We think that we, we need to use God so that we can enjoy our life. We, we use our neighbor to get out of them what we want from our neighbor so that we can live the life that we want for ourselves. I know this because I lived in New York City for a minute. And it was so disorienting to meet person after person after person and you can just be fascinated by them as a human being. But if you don't have something you can offer them, if, if them spending time and energy with you doesn't somehow improve their life or open up some kind of opportunity for their life, immediately get disinterested. They don't have time for people and things that aren't useful to them. Preaching about the Trinity reminds us that life isn't all about what we do and what gets done to us. Life is more than just our accomplishments. At the heart of what it is to be human is simply gazing on the beauty of God and the beauty of life and of one another in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a relief that comes when you realize it isn't all about that decision that I have to make tomorrow morning. When not every part of your life has to be practical and pragmatic, but some part of your life, the part of your life that's about God and about other people, is simply about delight and enjoying God and your neighbor. So, we come to this moment where we say whatever decision I make. If I make the wrong decision or the right decision, God remains God. God remains faithful. God remains beautiful. And if I can reflect on that beauty, something changes, something transforms deep inside of us and keeps us human in Augustine's language. So this is why we don't talk about the Trinity, the churches that we grew up in, it's just not very practical, it's difficult, it's challenging. And if you're not already bored, why did the Trinity develop, Father Paul? I'm going to tell you. 
A big part of it is that the early church had a big problem. They were praying to Jesus, believing in Jesus, worshiping Jesus, but they believe there's one God. How could they worship Jesus but believe in one God? This was a big dilemma for them because they're used to their prophets dying. They're not used to their prophets raising from the dead. This creates complication. So one of the first heresies that has to be rejected, one of the first doctrines of the church was refuting the idea that Jesus was simply the greatest of God's creatures. That Jesus was worthy of adoration and worthy of respect, but he was a creature much like we are creatures. And so only God remains deserving of worship. Now, again, this is a heresy. We want to reject this. How do they do that? The early Christians realized this needed to be resisted. Realized that they couldn't talk about Jesus that way as God's greatest creature. Because if Jesus is finite like us, like you and me, then he can't know God fully. God who is, who is infinite. And if he can't know God fully, Jesus can't reveal God fully. Are you following me? And we see this over and over in the New Testament, in 1 John and Hebrews 1, that they tell us Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if he's just the greatest of the created beings, then Jesus can't reveal the fullness of God and the gospels can't be trusted. That behind the face of Jesus is a God who's not quite like Jesus. A God who is kind of like him, but not fully like him. It also means that if Jesus is a creature, then our salvation, what Jesus did for us, isn't full. If Jesus doesn't reveal God fully, then our salvation is creaturely. It's not divine. Which means there are parts of our humanity, parts of our being, that aren't fully reached. And it means that our salvation is still incomplete. But if he is fully God, then there's no part of our lives that hasn't been reached and redeemed by what God has done in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. So, the doctrine of the Trinity, it emerges not from these deep theological debates, not from these, you know, clergy councils and meetings. It arises out of the worshiping community trying to make sense of their lives in light of who Jesus is is that's why we have to keep talking about the trinity because we can't help it we can't talk about what jesus has done we can't talk about who god is we can't talk about what the spirit is doing without talking about trinity and again if none of that seems to have any bearing on your life that's okay we're just called to gaze on the beauty of god but this wasn't just about who and what Jesus is. They were also reflecting on this phrase we find in 1 John, that God is love. God is love. Emphasis on the is. Not that God is loving 
Not that God does loving things, but that the nature of God's being is love. And if you sit with this idea long enough, you realize that it creates some problems for you if you don't think about God as Trinity. Are we ready to go in kind of deep waters? I told Father Chris that I, I used to be a lifeguard. And one summer, my, my best friend and I were lifeguards the same year. I don't really have time for this, but this is the story you're going to get. We were, we were lifeguards the same summer. He was a lifeguard at one of like the country club pools. I was a lifeguard at the inner city pool in downtown Fort Wayne. We get to the end of the summer, and I am like tattered and exhausted He's refreshed and tan. And I said to my best friend, I said, hey, just curious. How, how many rescues did you have this summer? And he went, what? How many what did I have? I was like, yeah, how many people did you have to like jump in and pull out of the pool because they were drowning? He was, none. I zero. <laughs> and he said, how many did you have? I said, 24. I pulled 24 drowning people out of the pool. So if this feels like deep water, you're in good hands. I've pulled <laughs> lots of bodies out of the pool before. So think about how, how privileged we often think that we are sitting in the 21st century. We have access to technology. We know things about the world, access to history. And so we tend to think that people who lived before us were somehow less privileged or less smart than us. But, but think about how they were thinking about the scriptures and about how they were thinking about their life with God. Their understanding was this, that if God's being is love, God must be Trinity. Now, we don't make that connection, at least not easily. But here's something of how they end up getting there, that if God's being is love, then God must be Trinity. Because if God is solitary, then there's no communion in God. Then God is alone before there are creatures. And if God is alone, then God needs creatures in order to start being loving. And if God needs creatures to start being loving, then God is not love because it means there was a time before which God could not love did you follow that? You see how complex some of these ideas about God's being can go. Because this would mean that God needed creatures in order to start loving, in order to become loving. But God has no need. God suffers no need. God has no need because God has no potential there's nothing that God could be that any of our prayers or any of our worship or any of our right activity could actually move God into being. Whatever God is going to be, God is right now. God has no potential. So there is nothing that God could be but isn't yet. And so God doesn't need creatures. This is good news for us. God does not need you. <laughs> At least you were not created out of need. Let's say it that way. You were not created out of need. You were created out of something better. We're going to talk about that in a moment. 
What's worse then is that if God was solitary, but we insist that God was loving, then it makes God out to just be the worst narcissist you can imagine. It means that God is the most selfish, the most self-absorbed being imaginable, that God is just a narcissist to the infinite degree, right? To be alone and to be loving. So in order to say that God is love and God doesn't need our love in order to become loving means before there is anything, there is God loving, but in a non-selfish, non-self-absorbed way. How does God do that? That requires God the Father loving God the Son and God the Spirit, receiving that love and then loving God in return. This is the move of the Trinity it's, to, it's to, stay in, to say the inside of God's own life is this infinite movement of giving and receiving, of taking in and emptying out. And that is the beauty of God that we're called to gaze on. An endless and perfect, eternal giving and receiving of love, of entrance and of welcome, of pouring out and taking in. The beauty of God is that God is already so loving that there's no, there's no selfishness in God. There's no self-absorption in God. That God's being is the being received in Jesus Christ, which is the being that is constantly laying itself down for us. So not only does the doctrine of the Trinity emerge to establish Jesus' divinity, that he's fully human and fully divine. And to also affirm that God is love, but the doctrine of the Trinity helps establish us seeing the world rightly. That to, to understand God's creation means that we have to understand who God is as creator. If this is the character of our God, then the only way to see the world rightly is to see it in ways that align with God's character. If God is love, and if God did not create us out of need, it says something about who we are. It says something about the world that we live in. Paul, speaking of Christ, says that creation is, is an excess of that love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Colossians 1, 16, it says this, For all things were created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things. Everybody say all things. When was the last time we did that? I don't know. All things have been created through him. And listen to this. And for him. All things were created for him, for Christ. What is this saying? It's saying that creation itself is a gift that God gives to the Son. Sitting in eternity, a God that is perfectly satisfied in that love says, Son, I want to give you something. I want to give you a gift. I want to give you creatures who will love you in the same way that I do. Robert Jensen, he says it this way. 
that it's as if in eternity, God the Father says to God the Son and to God the Spirit, we're having such a great time, aren't we? We really should let others in on this. This is what I want you to hear today, that we exist, not as people who were created out of a need to exist, not because God needs us. We exist because God loves the Son so much that he gives us as a gift. Our being, the most real thing about you is that you are a gift. You may reject what it is that you deserve. You may reject the reality of your being as gift. But what you deserve, what you were created for, this is why we ought to be suspicious of anybody who ever says to anybody else that what you deserve is hell. Because it's just not true. It might preach well, it might move some emotions, but it's just not true. You do not deserve hell. What you deserve is to be taken up into God's own life and to be given away as a gift. You deserve to be taken up into God's own life and perfected in who Jesus is by the power of the Spirit and then given back into the world. That's what you deserve. And again, we may reject that. We have free will. We may see ourselves differently. But what you deserve is to be received by the Son as a gift that is given by the life of the Father. That is what you deserve. We weren't created to be destroyed. We weren't created to be examples of God's wrath. We were created as tokens of the love that is God. Willie Jennings says that God is about desire. God is about delight before God is about demands. The nature of who God is, who God is in, in relation to creation, he sees us as gift. He sees us as something that's meant to be given away, not as something that is supposed to be imposed on by demands. You were designed to be delighted before God makes any demands on you. God delights in you. All of God's life desires you. God's only plan for your life is for you to be received into God's life and to be given out of God's life. That's what God wants for you. Let's take a look at a text. Again, I'm sure you brought your Bibles with you today. 1 Corinthians, we're going to chapter 12. Listen to all those pages flipping today. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. starting in 24. So we've just heard this idea that at the very beginning of all things, beginning of creation, that God gives creation to the Son as a gift. And then listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It says, Then comes the end of all things, when he, God, hands over the kingdom Oh, I'm sorry, when he, the son, gives the kingdom over to God. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, this is Jesus establishing his lordship over all creation. Now think about what just happened. 
In the beginning, God gives creation as a gift to the Son. And at the end of all things, once Jesus has established his lordship over all things, what does he do? He takes that gift that's been given to him and he gives it back to the Father. The Son gives the gift that was given back to the one who gave it. Our whole life is nothing more and nothing less than this exchange, than this transaction, that we are a gift that is being given and being received and given back again. You were created as a gift. You are the gift that is being given and that's being received. And the God in whose life we are being given and, and, and taken in exists in such a way that we are able to be fully ourselves, fully enjoying both God and our neighbor rather than using God and our neighbor to get what we want. So to talk of the Trinity is simply to talk about the ways in which who God is and who we are is identical with how God relates to us and why we exist the way that we do. This is the reality that we live in. That because of sin and brokenness entering into creation, we don't know how to be who God wants us to be apart from the Spirit's work in our lives. Going back to our gospel text for just a moment, then we'll be done. This was John 16. I'll get there. And I want us to hear something of how the Gospels talk about this kind of moment. Jesus says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, and notice in the Gospels, the truth is not something the truth is always someone. So Jesus is saying, when the spirit comes, when the spirit of truth comes, this is the spirit of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying, when that spirit comes, it points us to the life of Christ and the spirit will guide us into all truth. And what is all truth? It's the life that Christ makes possible for us. What is the life that Christ makes possible for us? It's a life that is so animated by the Spirit that your actions and the actions of God are indistinguishable from one another. That the words that you speak is the same words that God is speaking. That the actions that you take is the same activity that God is active in the world. Notice the rest of this text. Jesus says the spirit will glorify him because the spirit will take what is mine. The spirit says he will take what is mine and give it to us. That everything the father has, Jesus says, is mine. And this is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and declares it to you. This is the movement of the Trinity. That God gives of himself in Jesus, that Jesus gives of himself into our life by the power of the Spirit, and that same life is the life that God has given to his Son. 
This is what it is to get caught up in the life of the Trinity. It's not practical. It's not sexy. It's difficult and challenging and we stumble over our words. But if we sit with it long enough, there's something beautiful about it. Stand up so you think I'm done. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I went out of town and I have to confess to Father Brent, Reverend Janice, that my wife and I have not been feeding and caring for our marriage because this is the first time in, gosh, maybe nine years that we've had like a multiple overnight with just the two of us and not our kids. Somebody said, well, what did you do? <laughs> Whatever we wanted to do. It took us about a day and a half to get there. But once we realized we can do whatever we want, it was great. So the night before we leave, my daughter comes up to me and she says, I put a letter in your backpack. She says, don't read it yet. Read it on the airplane. I said, okay. Well, I didn't wait until the airplane. She went to bed and I went and pulled the letter out. <laughs> so I knew what the letter said. I walk out to the kitchen and my wife is standing there. And because my wife is wonderful, she's writing our kids' notes, which is something that she does all the time. She's writing our kids' notes, and I see what she's written. She has, she has a note for our daughter Goldie, who's a year and a half, and it just says, Goldie, you can't read yet. Love you, Mom. <laughs> and then the letters that she wrote to Rowan and to our, our daughter Nora, they say something like, Nora, we miss you already. We love you so much. Call us whenever you want. Love, Mom. So I see her writing this, and I say, hold on a second. And I go, and I pull out this letter. And I say, look at what Nora wrote to us. And I just set it down on the counter. And it said, Mom and Dad, I love you so much. Call me whenever you want to. We miss you already. Now, think about what's happened. That Nora has received these kinds of letters. She knows the kinds of things to say, these kinds of impulses that she has whenever we go away, the kinds of things she wants us to hear. I love you so much. Call me whenever you want. I miss you already. This is what life in the Trinity looks like that our actions as God's created beings are so in line and in tune with the kinds of messages that God has given to us that what we say and what we do in the world is indistinguishable from what God is doing and God is saying. And the gift that we're given on the other side of that, the gift that I received as witnessing this letter that's been written and this letter that's been given, that is what we hope to offer the world. That if we just open our lives even the slightest bit to this love that is God, other people will bear witness to it and their lives will be transformed. Their lives can be changed. So long as we don't think about using them and instead just enjoying them. Amen.